the prophet Ezekiel wrote, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. What a great promise that is. God made through the Old Testament prophet and fulfilled in the pouring out of the Spirit after Jesus' ascension into heaven. This is Steve Humble. I welcome you to another Humble Perspective. I'm continuing to read from my book, For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey. Moved by the Spirit is the title of chapter 5. As it turned out, key steps in working out my identification as a follower of Jesus in my own generation were to be taken while working alongside Franklin Hauser, a man of my parents' generation, in the context of a holiness church, the Wake Park Wesleyan Church in Northeast Minneapolis. It's amazing how seemingly insignificant and unrelated events can open the door to a major step in the path of one's life. After Patricia and I had moved to Marion, Indiana for my last year in college, we began to look for a church. Although I, I had been in Marion the year before and had visited several churches, I had not connected with any. It was important to Patricia especially that we have a church home in Marion. The second Sunday after we moved into our apartment, we attended the evening service at the South Marion Friends Church. Why? I don't really know. Perhaps it was because one of our favorite professors at Circleville Bible College, Dr. Amos Henry, was a Quaker. South Marion Friends Church was evangelical and held to the holiness message with which we had grown up. That first Sunday night, we saw the Brookshires, a couple whom we had met briefly a month and a half earlier. We had driven out to Marion for a couple days in July in order to find a place to live. Following up a lead about a trailer near the campus that might be for rent, we drove to the place and found that there were two trailers on a small lot. No one was home at the supposedly available trailer, so I walked next door to see if someone there could tell me how to contact the owner. I knocked on the door. A normal knock on a wooden house door, but a bang on the trailer door. I heard a man yell brusquely, Come on in and don't knock the door down. I opened the door and stepped inside gingerly. There I saw an elderly man sitting on the couch and an elderly woman standing in the kitchen area. He was as surprised to see a stranger as I had been to be invited in. It turned out that he had seen us pull up and thought that we were the couple who had lived next door the previous school year. The man invited me in for coffee. I called Patricia in and we had our first visit with Lucius and Minnie Brookshire and our first cups of Louisiana coffee, instant coffee with chicory blended in. After running into the Brookshires again at South Marion Friends Church, we shared many visits over the next nine months. Almost every Sunday evening after church, we went to the Brookshires trailer to enjoy Louisiana coffee 
and day-old or older donuts. Our first year of marriage was rich in experience and lean in finance. I had been able to get a job through the college working 20 hours a week at the South Marion Boys Club. My check came through the college business office. I would stop by the office, sign the check, and leave the money to cover tuition cost. Patricia had saved a few hundred dollars the year before while working at General Electric in Circleville. After moving to Marion, she found a job soliciting telephone catalog sales for the local store, Sears store. She brought home $41 a week. We made it through Christmas by living very carefully on Patricia's pay and the money she had saved. We shared our Christmas dinner on the evening of Christmas Day with Lucius and Minnie who came over to eat soup beans and cornbread with us. We found a grocery that sold bologna for 39 cents a pound and we ate a lot of it. Later we were told that this grocery had once been shut down a while for selling horse meat as hamburger. Who knows what may have been in the bologna we ate. Soon after Christmas, the transmission in our 1965 Comet broke down. There were no replacements available for that type transmission in any junkyard within 200 miles. We had to junk the car for $20, receiving that much only because the tires were good. Our elderly friend Lucius helped us find a 1963 Ford for $299. Then we were broke, down to $41 a week. But we were always able to pay our bills, and most of the time we had some food. Patricia got pregnant in February. She went to a doctor once to confirm the pregnancy. There were no home tests available in those days. We had no money for ongoing prenatal care. One week when we had no money and just a few cans of hominy, some crackers, and some sauerkraut for food. The sauerkraut was important. Patricia ate it cold every morning to settle her stomach during the period of morning sickness. And then she took crackers to work for her lunch. According to her, that's about all she could eat during the day because of the battle with morning sickness. As far as I can remember, we told no one about our lack of money and food. However, every night that particular week, people from South Marion Friends Church invite us to their homes to eat dinner. The pastor and his wife had us come to Sunday dinner. Then on Sunday evening after church, we arrived home to find two bags of groceries and $20 by the door to our apartment. Another time when we were flat broke, I opened my mailbox in the college student center and found a blank envelope containing four $5 bills. Some way or another, God always provided enough for us to get by. Patricia and I got involved in the bus ministry at South Marion Friends Church. Along with another couple, we rode a Sunday school bus each Sunday morning in order to make friends with the children and to help keep order on the bus. As we got off the bus one Sunday in early January 1972, Neil Hauser, a fellow Marion College student, met us and asked if I would fill in as teacher in the college and career Sunday school class. I agreed to do so. To my surprise and relief, the lesson that Sunday covered Mark 8, 34-38, a passage from which I had preached many times. Neil was impressed by the lesson I presented, apparently thinking that I had presented it completely extemporaneously. 
After the Sunday evening service, Neil came to me and asked if I had ever considered being a youth pastor. I told him about our plans to be self-supporting missionaries. A few days later, Neil approached me in the College Student Center. He told me that his dad, a pastor in Minneapolis, was looking for a youth pastor. Neil had told his dad about me, and his dad had requested that I write to him and tell him about myself. I offhandedly said that I would consider it, but actually gave it no serious thought at all, since at the time I knew where we were headed. A month or so later, I realized that I had neither written to Neil's dad, nor had I even given the request consideration. Yet, I had not been able to quite forget about the request either. Therefore, I wrote a letter describing the facts of my life and informed Pastor Hauser that I was not interested in being a youth pastor. Not long after that, Neil approached me again to say that his father was coming to Marion College to visit Neil and his siblings. Neil said that Pastor Hauser wanted to meet Patricia and me at the time. Seeking to be polite, I invited him, through Neil, to come to dinner at our apartment while he was in town. He accepted. On the appointed evening, when the doorbell rang, I went down the stairs and opened the door. I came face to face with a sandy-haired teddy bear of a man, probably six foot two inches and 230 pounds. By the time we had exchanged greetings and started up the stairs, I had already begun to connect with Pastor Hauser. Before the evening was over, a desire to be with him had begun to grow in me. This was confusing, since I knew that we were headed for the mission field. Over the next few weeks, the desire to work with Pastor Hauser continued to increase. Therefore, in early April, when he contacted us and invited us to fly up to visit Wake Park Wesleyan Church in order to be interviewed by the church board and to meet the people, we agreed. At the time, we still knew that we were going to go to graduate school and then to the mission field. But we also had a strong pull to be with Pastor Hauser again. On Friday, April 30, Patricia and I flew to Minneapolis to spend a weekend there. Wes and Jan Long met us at the airport, took us to dinner at the Steakhouse in Columbia Heights. Even though Wes and Jan were my parents' age, we found ourselves very comfortable with them. After the meal, we went to the church board members and their sp to meet the church board members and their spouses, in the fireside room at the Wesleyan Church building. I don't remember much about the interview except for one unforgettable moment. We were sitting in a large circle, a 60-ish looking man, sitting almost directly across the room from me, looked me straight in the eye and asked in a soft-spoken yet authoritative sounding voice, if we make you our youth pastor, what will be your program? Realizing that my answer would most likely disqualify me, I replied with virtually no hesitation. Sir, I've been using my energy to get through college. I've been planning to go on to graduate school. My wife and I have been planning to go into foreign missions. I don't have a program. The only thing I'd know to do would be to look for any young people who are ready to begin a serious Bible study and see what God would do. There was no response to this answer. The interview simply went on for some time after that and then ended with a time of sharing refreshments and informal conversation. 
During this fellowship time, however, board member Herb Pearson came to me. He said, if you are offered a position as youth pastor here, it will be because of the way you answered that question that George, George Walquist that is, asked about your program. Our youth have had one program after another and there's been little to show for it. Patricia and I indeed were offered the position and after a few days of prayer and thought we came to the assurance that it was God's will for us to take the offer. Thus, in early July 1972, shortly after I participated in the Explo 72 conference in Dallas, we packed up a U-Haul trailer, hitched it to the back of our baby blue 63 Ford, and headed for Minneapolis. In only 19 months in Wake Park Wesleyan Church, we were adopted into that church family so fully that even now, 45 years later, we still think of the people of that church as ours. Much of the vision of Christ's church and of the kingdom of God that we're still wrestling to work out and to live, I received in seed form during those months. We lived in an apartment building in the church building. In addition to being youth pastors, we also did the janitorial work. This living situation put us right at the heart of the church community, making us easily accessible to everyone and allowing us to quickly get a sense of the pulse of the church's life. We inherited two youth functions. We became responsible for three Sunday school classes, the junior high class, the high school class, and the college career young adult class. We also led a Wednesday night youth meeting for all three age groups, held at the same time that Adults and younger children in the church also had their own programs. When we arrived that July, the youth functions were virtually dead. Most of the young people who participated seemed to be there because it was expected or mandated by their parents. There was one bright spot. The church had held a missions conference in the spring. The main speaker had been Paul Decker, who had been a missionary in Africa. I had heard Decker speak during the January 1972 Spiritual Emphasis Week at Marion College. Decker had had experiences in Africa that moved him to think and act outside the box of the typical Wesleyan holiness perspective. While at Wake Park, Decker had ministered to Laura, a troubled teen and an intelligent young lady who had cerebral palsy. During the ministry session, Decker had discerned the influence of evil spirits working in the girl and had identified and cast out 15 or 16 specific demons. The change in Laura had been dramatic. Her deliverance had made quite a stir in the church, especially among the adults, a number of whom gained a sense of expectation and faith for the youth. That summer, on Sunday mornings, Pastor Hauser was teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Certainly a radical topic in those circles and a timely one for me, given the context that I had had with Jesus people over the previous months. In addition, Pastor Hauser was inviting different guest speakers to minister during the Sunday night services. Most, if not all, these speakers were either Pentecostal or Charismatic. One Sunday evening, soon after we arrived, instead of a speaker, Pastor Hauser had invited the TV choir from Souls Harbor, a large, independent Assembly of God church in downtown Minneapolis. I don't remember anything about the group singing. 
However, during the last song of their presentation, several members of the choir began to circulate among the congregation. One young man came to me and began to pray quietly over me. Part of his prayer was in tongues, the first time I had actually ever heard anyone pray in tongues. I had no strong reaction to this other than to be aware that it seemed appropriate and that God's presence seemed quite near while this young man prayed for me. One of the young women also prayed with Patricia. She responded to that young lady's prayer in tongues quite differently than I had responded to the prayer in tongues for me. This incident fed my growing hunger to have more of the Lord in my life. The next morning I went downstairs to the church sanctuary to pray. I remember saying fervently to the Lord, If you want me to have the gift of tongues, I would like to have it. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 12:11, which says that the Holy Spirit apportions the spiritual gifts to individuals according to His will. I did not expect an immediate answer, but I believe that I clearly heard the Lord speaking to me in my spirit. You will, but not now. Immediately a peace came over me, a confidence that God was at work and that I would indeed have the gift of tongues at the right time. Within a couple weeks of our arrival at Waite Park, I announced to the church that we would be beginning a Bible study for youth in our apartment on Tuesday nights. I specifically asked the parents not to force their teens to come because it seemed right to have an activity for those who were personally motivated toward God. The first Tuesday, five teens showed up. Second Tuesday, three came. These three teens became the first to show real commitment, but gradually over the next month or so, a few more began to come to the Bible study. 15 to 20 youth from that Bible study became the core group for all that happened over the next year and a half. On one of the first Sundays after our move, I saw a young man about 19 or 20 who had fairly long hair. Outside of the church, his hair would have hardly been noticeable in those days, but the young people at Wake Park Church were, quote, straight, unquote. They were just normal, middle-class church kids of that time. Back then, straight meant the opposite of hippie or counterculture freaks, not the opposite of homosexual as it has in recent years. I introduced myself to the young man. He told me his name was Ron O'Dell, and we began to talk. I discovered two things in that conversation. First, his parents were one of the couples who in their youth had helped start the church, and two, he played the guitar. I asked him to play guitar for our youth gathering in the fireside room, which we had announced would follow that evening's service. He said he would, and then volunteered to do a special number in the church service that evening as well, having heard us announce that the youth were to be responsible for that gathering. I readily agreed, even though I did not know whether Ron even had a relationship with the Lord. As it turned out, Whatever relationship Ron may have had with God was at least dormant at the time. And Ron wasn't very good on the guitar either. In the adult service, he attempted to play and sing What a Friend We Have in Jesus. He sang the standard familiar tune, but he was playing the music from a book of folk-style hymns. Same lyrics, completely different tune. It was really bad. Was Ron embarrassed? 
Not that anyone could tell. When he had finished the special, Ron said with a smile, I'll be featured in the fireside room following this service. Later on, I would discover that he was humble and unassuming, yet self-confident. Little did I know that this atypical young man would become a vital part of the work and one of my best friends. The next time I saw Ron was on a Sunday afternoon a couple weeks later. He showed up at our door to let me know that he and a buddy were leaving shortly for a three-week motorcycle trip to the Canadian Rockies and the northwestern United States. He had come by to ask me to pray for him. I did. Still not at all clear about Ron's relationship with the Lord, among other things, I prayed that God would reveal himself to Ron in a completely new way on that trip. That incident became the first of many times when Ron would drop by for some prayer, as naturally and casually as other people dropped by for a cup of coffee. In late August, we took the youth group away for a weekend retreat. A turning point in our work at Wake Park an unrecognized turning point in the moment occurred on Saturday night. We were gathered around a fireplace in, the, in an unlit room in the chilly central Minnesota climate. It passed for a campfire service. During that service, we invited the young people to make a new or fresh commitment to the Lord by writing down their commitment on a piece of paper and then offering it to Him by placing the paper in the fire. We invited them to share their commitment with the group if they desired to do so. It was a fairly typical meeting of that sort, except for one commitment. Ron spoke out quite casually. Lord, it's about time you and I got it together. I give my life to you. Ron's words stood out not because they were dramatic or even seemed important. Rather, they were memorable because they were so unspiritual. Most of us did not think this was any way to talk to God, and it certainly didn't seem like the way to get saved. Where were the tears and the emotions and the fervent prayers that were associated with repentance? Where was the sinner's prayer? Where was the joy and the testimony of feeling forgiven and accepted by God? Needless to say, I left without much thought of significant change having taken place until the following Monday evening. It was about 5.15 p.m. on Monday when Patricia and I heard a knock on our apartment door. It was Ron, and he was virtually glowing. With excitement, he told us how he had been witnessing about the Lord to his co-workers at the dry cleaner where he worked as a truck driver. He told us how he had talked about Jesus through the open passenger side door to people on the sidewalk whenever he had to stop for stoplights. Ron was on fire with love for the Lord. Sharing the good news was as natural for him as eating, and apparently more fun. I was stunned. I had not even put much stock in his commitment. Here he was doing the work of an evangelist already, joyfully and naturally. Talking about Jesus, that is. Witnessing or evangelizing outside a church meeting was the big challenge. Nothing about the responsibility of a Christian intimidated me more. Nothing made me feel guiltier about my failure than my fear of witnessing. Here was a newly committed Christian to whom witnessing was as normal as breathing. With Ron, witnessing was not a temporary activity. Rather, it became a way of life. Obviously, God had gifted him as an evangelist. 
Over the next months, I also experienced more freedom in sharing the good news as Ron and I began to hang out. We passed out Jesus papers, which were newspapers produced by various groups of Jesus people during that Jesus movement time. We walked the streets of Hennepin Avenue and the Nicollet Street Mall in downtown Minneapolis looking for people with whom we could talk about Jesus. We led the youth from the church in setting up a table in the Apache Plaza shopping mall to campaign for Jesus during the 1972 presidential election campaigns. We drove around looking for hitchhikers whom we could pick up. Then we would take them wherever they were going in the Twin Cities area as long as they would talk about Jesus and spiritual things with us. The Lord had put Ron and me together to begin to work as a team before I even realized that one of God's normal ways of working is to join people into corporate units to do the work of ministry. Apart from any planning on man's part, God brought another member to the team that he was building. A few weeks after Patricia and I moved to Minneapolis, Pastor Hauser informed me of the church board's decision to hire Jay Swisher part-time with a huge salary of $25 per week. They were hiring him to lead the church in the area of music with specific goal of building a choir. Pastor Hauser informed me that Jay was a single man about my age whose family had at one time been in Waite Park Church and that he was moving back to Minneapolis. Pastor Hauser encouraged me to reach out to Jay and befriend him. He suggested that Jay might be able to help us with mu the music in our youth work. Therefore, Patricia and I asked Jay to stay for lunch after church on his first Sunday with us. Jay and I, and Patricia too, connected almost immediately. I knew he was all right when I played my love, new love song record album for him. He really liked it. Like me, Jay was motivated to teach. Although our backgrounds were different, we quickly found ourselves sharing camaraderie in the Spirit, centered in a hunger to know God and to know the Scriptures. Jay's joyful attitude and his sensitivity toward other people especially endeared him to Patricia. Jay recruited and worked with choir for a few weeks, and they presented one song on a Sunday, and then no more, ever. It wasn't that it was a bad choir or a bad idea. It simply became apparent that it was not God's idea. The Lord was working in the church at that time in such a way that we had little interest in doing things only because that's what churches do. Rather, we were hungry to find out what God was doing and to do it with Him. Jay began to participate in the youth activities right away. The addition of his musical skill was an obvious benefit to the work. However, his biggest contribution by far was the example of his life, his sincere, fully dedicated devotion to Christ, his walk of, obedi of obedience to the Holy Spirit, his love for the Scripture, and his commitment to the Brotherhood. Jay will be our friend forever. His friendship is one of those special ones. We work together smoothly. We spent large amounts of time together with little or no conflict. After the Wake Park years, we have often not even had contact for years at a time, but when we do, by phone, by letter, by visit, or these days by email, we just pick up where we are at present, catching up on some details from the years between us as we go, delighting in the discovery that we still share the same camaraderie in the Spirit and have continued to grow similarly 
in the life of God's kingdom. Jay began to develop a relationship with Rosalie, whom he later married. They met in our Tuesday night Bible study. He has been an elder in a Plymouth Brethren Church for many years. Until recently, when he retired from work and moved to Wisconsin and became part of a church there, I might add. I had been hired to pastor the Wake Park Youth. The Lord made us part of a team. Patricia was not an insignificant member of the team. She provided an important and effective example of woman, Christian womanhood as a person, a wife, and before long a mother. She was an effective teacher in the Sunday school classes that we offered. She opened her home freely as a place where young people were invited to drop in and hang out. With loving flexibility and no prior notice, she would set out one or two or more extra plates at mealtime, providing meals on a tiny grocery budget and sometimes literally asking God to multiply the food, like Jesus had multiplied the loaves and fishes. One particular evening, I invited Jay and Ron to eat with us, not realizing that Patricia was working with less than half a pound of hamburger. Knowing that she did not have enough for everyone, she prayed for the hamburger to be multiplied as she made it into meatloaf. Then one of the teenage girls came by, so Patricia invited her to stay as well. The five of us ate all the meatloaf we wanted and had some left over. Patricia is far more personable than I am. Therefore, her role in connecting relationally with the young people was vital. She was able to relate to those on the edge of the group much better than I could. The fact that she is a few years older than me was a blessing to our work because she was able to be something of a second mom to the young people as well as to be a big sister, especially to the girls. I marvel even today as I write at God's sovereignty and meticulous work in forming such a team. In no way would I have foreseen his plan. And even the godly experienced people who made up the Wake Park Church Board, nor Pastor Hauser himself, would have seen the need for this team, let alone be able to pull it together. Thank God. My faith is encouraged even now, as I remember it. Soon I discovered that God had provided another significant friendship for us as well. About the same time that we came to Wake Park, Dr. Dan Hadlock and his wife Lynn began to attend the church. We had met them, but they really came to the forefront of our attention in August when the transmission went out of our blue Ford. The word got out about the problem, and Dan and Lynn, who had only just begun to visit the church, contributed the money to have the transmission rebuilt. The Hadlocks had young children and were never directly involved in the youth work, but the four of us soon became friends. Before long, Dan began to meet with Jay, Ron, and me in a weekly Bible study. Supposedly, we were studying the book of Romans. However, in nearly a year and a half of getting together, we never did finish the book. We would start to read a few verses, then we would cross-reference all over the Bible, before long, we would move from biblical themes to personal sharing and prayer. Without ever having heard of the concept, the Lord had provided me with an accountability group with whom I felt free to share anything. We gave one another full acceptance and support without hesitating to call one another to live up to God's call and standard. 
Later, the Lord added Doug Millage and later still his brother Mark to the group after each of them had begun to follow the Lord. It's impossible to overemphasize the important contribution made in my life by this group. It became both a vital and foundational aid to my growth at the time and also a piece of my long-term desire to see men grow together in the Lord. The work in the youth group began to develop and our team's influence among the teens steadily grew during the fall. Pastor Hauser rarely told us what to do in the youth work, but in August 1972, he did give one assignment to us. One of his elementary age daughters had come home from school one day the previous spring with some information presented in her classroom as sex education. This information was diametrically opposed to Pastor Hauser's convictions and, even more important, to biblical principles. He asked that we use the Sunday school classes to give a biblical perspective on sexuality, dating, and marriage. We knew of no models for dealing with such a topic in Sunday school. Chicken heart that I was, I asked Patricia to take that class. Therefore, in the fall quarter, she started sex education with the junior high age group. She was about seven months pregnant when the class started. She had her first child, Elijah, on November 6, 1972, while the class was still going on. That class was great. She was a living object lesson. She handled things with honesty and wisdom. The young people received teaching from her without becoming silly or embarrassed. Parents were amazed and grateful. In the winter quarter, Patricia took on the senior high people. There were some dicey moments, but she handled a few inappropriate remarks with humor and ease. The emphasis with this group was on dating relationships and sexual purity. The spring quarter with the college and career group was tougher for her. It focused more on marriage and family issues. At the time, we did not know enough to separate the men and women. She was not comfortable talking to a group, including men about her own age, on these topics. Also, several of the women were quite unlikely to ever marry at all. Wisely, Patricia refused to teach this session. Unfortunately, in those days, we had not been challenged to even consider that our American culture might be off base in its approach to boy-girl relationships. We had not yet seen that recreational dating in and of itself was a serious part of the problem setting up young people for sexual temptation and in fact encouraging them to hurt one another rather than to edify one another. We had not yet been exposed to the truth that dating as a part of courtship is appropriate when one is actually ready to enter a marriage relationship, but it's a foolish way to socialize. We also had not seen that from a scriptural perspective, God has given parents the primary responsibility to educate and train their children, and that no area of training is more important than imparting basic values and life skills. Having us, or rather Patricia, deal with this material on sex and men-women relationships was far better than leaving it to the public schools. Would that we had known, however, that it would have been better yet to work with the parents so that they could train their own children. Even so, Pastor Hauser and we were doing the best we could. God honored Patricia's willingness and used her to strengthen some basic convictions that many of those young people bought into and lived by. The foundations in relationship and truth 
were being laid that fall. The next significant event in our work with the youth was to have John and Vicki Meadows come up from Ohio to lead a youth revival between Christmas and New Year's Day. God met us powerfully in the days that we shared together with the Meadows that week. Our gatherings were more like Jesus people meetings that Patricia and I had visited than what we had previously known as youth revival meetings. John and I kept our covenant from May 1970. On occasion we had talked by phone, but since neither of us had much money, we started mailing cassette tapes to one another. It wasn't too long until we were exchanging 90-minute tapes once a month or so. Looking back at it now, I am blessed to consider the trust placed in us by the Wake Park Church Board. The members of the board authorized me to invite John and Vicki to come share with the youth based solely on our recommendation, since they knew nothing about the Meadows. The church board also purchased the airline tickets and provided an honorarium. The events of that week did not happen in a vacuum, of course. For one thing, many adults in the church had been praying for some time specifically that God would move upon their youth. Also, most of the young people had parents who had sown the things of God faithfully into their children over the years. The dynamic working of the Holy Spirit that had been received and fostered in the church by the leadership provided an atmosphere of freedom. Not insignificantly, Pastor Hauser's teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit in prior months had opened the door to expectation for something more than the typical youth revival meetings that one might have expected in the churches with which we were familiar. We had experienced God's grace in our efforts during the preceding months. We could see that several of the young people were growing in their spiritual hunger to know and serve God. The youth Bible study had grown sl slowly and steadily, as had the Wednesday night meeting. Jay had helped us to learn sing to sing many of the scripture songs that were beginning to be sung in those years. There was vibrancy in our singing time. There was a growing hunger for God's word among us. In addition, the example of Ron's changed life was making an impact on the younger teens. John and Vicki flew into Minneapolis on the afternoon of Christmas Eve. I wonder now what their parents thought about them spending that Christmas with us rather than with their families. Patricia and I went to the airport to pick them up. There we discovered, as John and Vicki came from the plane into the terminal, that Jack and Rosie Hickman were also waiting to greet them. It turned out that the Hickmans were members of a Jesus People house church that met near the Ohio State campus. The Meadows had become involved with this house church. Jack and Rosie had then moved to the Twin Cities so that Jack could study at a Bible college sponsored by Compassion Christian Centered, located in a suburb north of us. Compassion was a formerly Lutheran church that had become charismatic. We arrived at the church building and our apartment just as Wake Park's traditional Christmas Eve candlelight service was ending. As the people were moving from the sanctuary into the hall to go out to their cars, in we came bringing John with his afro-like haircut and Jack and Rosie looking pat just like hippies whom we could have picked up hitchhiking on I-35. It must have stretched the middle-class people of Wake Park and especially the parents of the teens who were entrusting their young people to us. However, we were all greeted warmly with genuine, godly love.
On Christmas Day, Jay, Ron, John, and I listened to a tape of Calvary Chapel's pastor, Chuck Smith, teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. To this day, that message by Chuck Smith is one of my favorites on this subject. His simple teaching and anecdotes made us all hungry to know Jesus more intimately. As the tape ended, John headed for the restroom. Quite a while later, when he came out, it was evident that something unusual had taken place. He was fairly glowing with joy as he came back into the room and announced quietly that he had begun to speak in tongues while in the restroom. We all rejoiced with him, none more than Jay, who himself had begun to pray in tongues a few weeks earlier during his own personal prayer time. The rest of the day was spent in rich fellowship. The youth gathering started on the evening of December 26th. I do not remember enough to describe these meetings in detail. I can only say that the overall impact of that week made an indelible impression on my life, simply because God's presence was so rich among us. I do remember one evening when the conviction of the Holy Spirit moved among the young people in a particularly powerful way. For example, one young high school senior, Mark Millage, had seemed totally un in uninterested in following the Lord. He appeared to have come to the meeting only because his parents had pressured him to do so. However, the Holy Spirit confronted Mark so strongly that he literally fell out of his chair and lay face down on the floor weeping and repenting. He changed dramatically that night and lived differently from that time on, soon becoming the fifth member of our men's Bible study. I also remember that word began to get out that God was up to something among us. A few times during the fall, I had visited a Christian coffee house held on weekend evenings at a Christian-owned smorgasbord restaurant. Several adults from the coffee house showed up on the last couple of nights, including one who was supposedly a prophet. He was the first person whom I'd ever met who was described as a prophet, a designation given him in the house church circles where he fellowshiped. Suffice it to say, I was su suspicious of him. I had come to believe that the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 are just as valid today as in New Testament times. Nevertheless, that did not mean that I believed the ministry gifts, the offices, some would say, that are listed in Ephesians 4 were still operating in the church. Not those of apostles and prophets, anyway. Fortunately, the brother didn't say much. He would not have been warmly received. The work that God had begun to do that fall began to be evident after those meetings with the Meadows. The work among the youth began to grow. Attendance also began to grow. It wasn't too long till more than 20 were attending the weekly Bible study. We would typically have between 30 and 40 present on Wednesday night and also on Sunday morning. A core of 15 to 20 young people participated in all three groups. During the summer of 1973, we offered the youth a discipleship school. Although we were overly ambitious in the amount of work we assigned over emphasizing information instead of the impartation of the Lord's way of life to the teens, the Lord blessed our efforts abundantly and most of the core group are still following Jesus today. One morning in late January, early February 1973, I visited the Bible school conducted by Compassion Christian Center. 
Jack Hickman had been studying there. Since we had met the Hickmans at Christmas, Ursula and Patricia Schreider had also moved from the Columbus Fellowship so that Ursula could enter the Bible school. The Hickmans and Schreiders were becoming friends with Patricia and me. Jack and Ursula had been wanting me to visit the school. I attended the class on the Book of Acts with Jack. Even now, all these years later, I can remember the professor, John Matthews, teaching from the 17th chapter of Acts. He talked about the powerful gospel demonstrated and preached by Paul and his team. Good news so powerful that the Jewish opponents cried out against them. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Acts 17.6 The teaching fed my growing desire to discover the power of the gospel. Then we went to chapel. The speaker was Lutheran missionary evangelist Herb Maroud, but I didn't pay much attention to his name that day and quickly forgot it, having no idea that a few months later I would have reason to remember it again. Mr. Maroud had made several trips to the Philippines to preach and was getting ready to leave shortly on another trip there. After he had finished speaking, we were invited to gather around him in order to pray for him and the mission trip. As I was quietly praying, it was as though visible syllables in some language other than English were inscribed across my brain. I clearly sensed the Lord saying to me, you can speak in tongues now if you want. Therefore, I began to read all the syllables that I saw and then I continued praying quietly using sounds that I did not recognize. I was mildly excited that I had received this gift of the Holy Spirit, but it was not some spectacular spiritual or emotional experience. About that time, I sensed the Lord was giving me a word of encouragement for Mr. Maru concerning the effectiveness of his ministry in the coming trip. I spoke out the words that I felt God was giving. I prayed in tongues most of the way back to our apartment, and often over the next day or two. Within a few days, however, I began to be skeptical. Was I just making up these strange sounds by my own initiative? A battle raged within me. Had I received the true gift of tongues, or was I only fooling myself? Besides, I kept th thinking, if, even if this was the real thing, what value did it have? For the next few weeks, I felt silly making inane sounds. I would go for a few days at a time and not pray in tongues at all. However, after nearly a month of this battle, I took another hard look at the scriptures in Acts and Corinthians that mention tongues, and I began to hold the issue seriously before the Lord. I came to three conclusions. First, the gift of tongues is scriptural. Second, the Holy Spirit had actually offered this gift to me. And third, I needed to exercise the gift whether it ever seemed real or made any sense to my mind. At that point, I made a decision to pray in tongues consistently and to trust the Holy Spirit concerning the value and the reality of the gift. A few days later, as I was reading in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5 jumped out at me. It reads, For while we spend our life in a body of flesh, we do not war with carnal weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they are powerful with God's help for the tearing down of fortresses, inasmuch as we tear down reasonings and every proud barrier that's raised up against the knowledge of God 
and lead every thought into subjection to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 as translated in the Modern Language Bible. It struck me that tongues was one of these weapons, not a physical weapon, but a spiritual one. I saw that it was as though my mind were imprisoned within a fortress. I knew according to Isaiah 55 that God had declared that my thoughts were not his thoughts and that his thoughts were much higher than mine. Previously, I had thought that I could learn God's thoughts only by studying. However, now I could see that ways of thinking, reasonings or speculations, proud barriers, lofty thoughts, these were walls that kept me from perceiving God's thoughts, not simply lack of study. My mindset had been captured at a deep level by the thought systems of this world. I perceived that by praying and singing with the Spirit, or with my Spirit, that is, praying in tongues or singing in tongues, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and 15, it was as though I were shooting cannonballs into the walls around my mind. I perceived that as my Spirit agreed with the Spirit of God, agreed on things that my worldly mindset could not grasp, let alone agree with, the fortress would begin to be torn down. And as the mental walls came down, I could begin to bring my thoughts into subjection to Christ. That is, I could align my thinking with His. I had come to the place where I was committed to use the gift of tongues as a step of obedience. Without this insight from Scripture, or with this insight from Scripture, I began to pray in the Spirit with even more faith and conviction. Three significant events occurred in the following months, the significance of which I did not see at all until the third event revealed their connection. Only in hindsight did I begin to connect them with praying in tongues. The first event occurred early in March. Pastor Hauser called me into his office and told me to set aside the first week of April. He said that he had registered us to attend the Basic Youth Conflict Seminar, which was going to be held in St. Paul. I remember that Pastor Hauser showed me a brochure about the seminar, but he did not mention any speaker, nor did I notice mention of one in the brochure. He did say that the seminar was coming to the Twin Cities for the first time, and that it had been highly recommended to him by friends. I remember him saying that the seminar was being advertised only by word of mouth. A second event occurred one morning later in March while I was getting ready to leave the house in order to drive my friend Dan Hadlock to the airport. The prophet from the house groups who had come to our youth meetings in December showed up unannounced at our apartment. I was more than a little skeptical about his ministry. For some unknown reason, I didn't even like this fella, and I didn't even want him around. He asked to speak with me for a few minutes. I reluctantly invited him in. He began to read some scriptures in Proverbs and Jeremiah. The only thing I remember about the readings was that they included the words wisdom and understanding. After reading, he looked me in the eyes and said, The Lord is saying to you, Get wisdom and get understanding. I replied, a bit sarcastically as I recall, Wisdom and understanding about what? He said, I don't know. 
The Lord just says, get wisdom and get understanding. And very shortly thereafter, he left. After I'd picked up Dan, I laughingly told him about the nut who had come by with a word for me. I didn't think much more about it. These two incidents became connected when on the first Monday evening in April, Pastor Hauser and I drove the St. Paul Civic Center. I was amazed that so many people had gathered there, about 9,000. There was no singing, no introductions, no fanfare. At 7 p.m., a rather small, unassuming man walked out onto the stage set up on the floor of the arena far below us. Without a word, he turned on an overhead projector and wrote down the words, Wisdom, understanding. His starting point was to define these words. Needless to say, he had my attention. Although I don't remember actually hearing the man's name until Wednesday evening. The presentation on Tuesday was life-changing for me. On that night, Mr. Bill Gothard talked about spiritual authority, about the God-established chain of command. I was struck with conviction, conviction that increased throughout the week. Through Mr. Gothard, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that I was a rebel, not just a bit rebellious, but a rebel in spirit and nature. And along with the conviction came the grace to repent. By the end of the week, I knew that I had to call my dad and ask his forgiveness for my rebellious attitudes and words and actions toward him through the years. I did call him. I had no idea how deeply I'd hurt Dad until I heard his response. Well, son, we'll see if you change. Obviously, I had violated trust to the point where he could not just accept my words, but would need to see the fruit of my repentance. Because of the revelation of my sin that God had given, I wasn't offended by Dad's response. Even though I was grieved, I understood. And his response, I believe, helped to solidify my conviction to change. I have not always been perfect in submitting to authority or in using authority since that time, but I've consistently sought to recognize and to walk under those whom God has delegated to carry spiritual authority in my life. My ways of thinking and my ways of behaving have been changed permanently in this regard, even as I have continued to grow in my understanding of spiritual authority and in the wisdom with which I receive it, as well as exercise it. Although I cannot prove it, I've become fully convinced that by praying in the Spirit, praying in tongues, that is, my mind was released from captivity to the rebellious spirit that characterizes fallen man in general and very specifically characterized my generation. Because the fortress had been knocked down, I was able to hear in my spirit what the Holy Spirit was saying through Mr. Gothard. I could see that I had been a rebel in heart. I had power in God to subject my mind to the mind of Christ in this area.